Miles Dewey Davis III was an American jazz trumpeter, bandleader, and composer. He is among the most influential and acclaimed figures in the history of jazz and 20th century music. Davis was born with a condition known as sickle cell anemia, which would influence many aspects of his life as he grew up. Davis left his hometown to study at the Juilliard School in New York City before dropping out and making his way as a professional trumpeter. During this time, he wrote a host of famous songs, including Stella by Starlight, All Blues, and Someday My Prince Will Come. And in 1959, he married a dancer named Frances Taylor. Things started to turn sour. The relationship involved numerous incidences of Davis's domestic violence towards Taylor. One reason for his behaviour was that in 1963, he had increased his use of alcohol and cocaine to reduce the joint pain caused by sickle cell anemia. This increased drug use caused him to suffer hallucinations. One time, he hallucinated looking for this imaginary person in his house while wielding a kitchen knife. Not long after that, Taylor left him. Sickle cell anemia would start making noticeable trouble for Davis in 1975 in Osaka to additional health problems such as pneumonia, osteoarthritis, depression, and stomach ulcers. He relied on alcohol, codeine, and morphine to get through his engagements. His shows were routinely panned by critics who mentioned his habit of performing with his back to the audience. In 1991, Davis suffered a brain hemorrhage, followed by a coma. After several days of life support, his machine was turned off, and he died on September 28, 1991. Hi there, welcome to Genetic Drift, the podcast where we take a deep dive into the world of genetic diseases and try to lift some of the stigma surrounding them. I'm your co-host, Anthony. And I'm Juliet. So, can you take a guess into what we're covering today? Well, I think you said sickle cell anemia, which I have very little idea what that is. Can we, can we jump back to that story? Because one, talk about self-medication. And two... If you ever go crazy and come at me with a kitchen knife, I too will leave you. I'm sorry. That's fair. I don't know if he actually came at her with a kitchen knife, but he was wandering around the house with one, which is pretty concerning regardless. Would you like me to give you a quick summary of what sickle cell anemia is? Yes, please. Sickle cell anemia is an inherited disease that affects your red blood cells. So those are the little red cells that kind of look like donuts floating around your blood that carry oxygen. Mmm, now I'm thinking about donuts. Maybe later. Well, actually, no, very later. We're still locked up. So this happens because there's a mutation in a gene that makes up part of hemoglobin. Now, hemoglobin is that molecule that you hear about in biology classes that actually carries the oxygen within the red blood cells. A thing in the blood to actually carry the oxygen. Yes. Okay. And because there is this mutation... This protein's the wrong shape, which then means that the hemoglobin doesn't work properly, so you can't carry oxygen as well. Okay. So that's where the anemia comes from, because you've got this inability to transport oxygen effectively. And what this means is that 
you're going to have uh, a few symptoms. Now these include anemia, which in this case is because of a shortage of red blood cells, because the red blood cells themselves are brittle. I thought anemia was that thing because of lack of iron. There are many types of anemia. Iron is one of them. A shortage of haemoglobin is another, and a shortage of red blood cells is another. Now the weird thing is, because of this strange haemoglobin, there's a build-up of the uh, component, and this causes the red blood cells to change into the shape of what you think of as either a crescent moon or a red croissant. <laughs> okay, let's break that down. Why, why is the cell changing shape? So there's a component in haemoglobin called haemoglobin beta. So there are four pieces that make up haemoglobin. Two of them are haemoglobin beta. So you can think of it as just pieces being put together. And if one piece is the wrong shape, it won't be put into the final product. So they're building blocks. Yeah, essentially. They're building blocks for haemoglobin. Yeah. And, and two of the blocks are the wrong shape, so you can't get them to form the tower. Yes. And because that one's not the right shape, and therefore you're not able to form the haemoglobin, the, the red blood cells are thinking, we need to make more of this to actually make the haemoglobin. But unfortunately, it can never make it the right shape. So, you so get they the... just keep producing the wrong shaped block over and over again. Yes, and then that forces the cell into the wrong shape. Into a croissant shape. Yes, which is thin, spiky, and breaks easily. And that's why you get a shortage of red blood cells. Cells can be spiky? Yes. That seems concerning. Yes, and that actually leads to some of the other symptoms as well. So you can get something called a sickle cell crisis. And what happens is because the cells are spiky, they can stick to blood vessels and then other cells will stick to it. And then this causes a small blockage. And this can happen in a host of areas. So one of the uh, more concerning ones is that it can start cutting off blood supply to the bone, which can be extremely painful, but it can also cause sections of the bone to die. Bone can die? Yeah, it can die inside you. And then that can start causing tissue around it to also die if it's not handled, like, immediately. So suddenly, your bone, inside you, that's not been touched, is just dying. Yes. This is in extreme cases. I need to stress that. Okay, what does it feel like if your bone's dying? Is it like a growth pain? A growing pain? I think it'd be more akin to having a red-hot iron placed into whichever area is affected. Okay, much worse. A lot worse. So, other things that can happen... Um, wait, wait, so, if your bone dies, what what happens if your bone just starts dying? Well, oh. you're going to need to get that piece of bone removed. Just just take some bone out, no problem. Yeah, um, if it's in a structurally supporting area, it could disable you. Because if it happens on an area that you need to hold your weight up, and enough of its damage that you can't really repair that bone, then you're not going to be able to stand properly, for example. And this could happen anywhere in your body? Yes. So it could happen in, like, your femur, and then you can't stand? Yeah. Um, obviously, you know, there are ways to handle uh, a sickle cell crisis, which I'll go into later. There is also a specific type of sickle cell crisis that's worth mentioning, and this one's called a priapism attack. Does that mean what I think it means? Probably. Are you thinking something to do with penises? Yeah. Yes. So, remember how I said that the cells cause a blockage in the blood vessels? 
Yeah. Well, it can also block the blood vessels supplying the penis. And then what this does is it traps blood in the penis. So you then end up with these sustained painful erections for hours or even days if you're unlucky. And the reason being that the blood's trapped it's not potentially going anywhere because you've got all these blood cells trapped with each other. And then because they're all spiky, it's kind of like having the inside of the penis being cut. Is that kind of like what happens when Viagra goes wrong? They always say on the adverts, go talk to your doctor if your erection doesn't go away. Yeah, it is one of those instances where you definitely need to see a doctor if your erection lasts more than an hour. If it lasts just an hour, you can probably think of yourself as a stud, but... Listeners, I don't think you're getting to appreciate uh, Aunt wincing every time he talks about this painful erection. Well, the main reason I'm wincing is because what happens next. So, these priapism attacks, if they're not handled properly, can actually damage the tissue in the penis, which can lead to a permanent inability to have an erection, or, if you have complete blood supply lost to the penis from this, you could also end up having tissue die, and maybe have bits or the whole penis removed. Or, if they do treat it, one of the methods they might have to do is stick a needle in the penis to drain the blood. I can think of some woman that would really love to have that job. Yeah. <laughs> I think I've lost a bit of colour. So another symptom that's worth noting is that you can also end up with lung and heart injury. And I guess because of those blockages? Uh, yeah, some of it's because of that. It's also because there's lots of really thin capillaries that run through the lungs so that you can take up oxygen and around the heart to supply all the tissue. And you've got all these spiky blood vessels going through that can then actually damage the uh, blood vessels and damage the tissue around it. Can your heart also be hurt if it's not getting enough oxygen? Yes, yes. If you damage the heart enough from a lack of blood supply, you can have heart attacks. So, lots of ways for this to go terribly wrong. Yeah. So how do you find out if you have sickle cell anemia? Well, there's one really simple way to diagnose it, which is just called a sickle prep. And for this, all you do is you take someone's blood, you put it on a slide, you look at it. And under a microscope? Yeah, you look at it under a microscope, and if the blood's the wrong shape, and it's that weird kind of croissant or moon-like shape, then you know you've got sickle cell. That seems easy. Do you, you have it from birth, though? Yes, it's a genetic disorder, so you get it at birth. So is that one of the things they always test for right away? I don't think that's one of those things that they test for immediately. They might test for it in at-risk population. But... There are some uh, tests known as prenatal diagnoses. So this is a, a test that you can do before a child is born to work out if they have sickle cell anemia. The, these are the two I mentioned in our last episode. So there's amniocentesis, where you take some of the amniotic fluid and you test the DNA. And then there's chorionic villus sampling, where you take a small amount of the placenta and you check the DNA. Yeah, I remember those. Yeah. They're quite cool tests, really. Cool, kind of terrifying, whichever. Yeah, that's fair enough. I think it's also worth mentioning a little bit more about the anemia, because it's more often called sickle cell disease now, but it was commonly known as sickle cell anemia. And now they've been changing the name? 
Yeah, I think it's so that people don't associate it with just one symptom. Like, like what? Well, the anemia itself, which is, in this case, a shortage of red blood cells, and this is because the cells are fragile, so they just break down, which I can result... Of, so I think of anemia as, like, people who are pale and tired. Well, that's the thing. You end up with fatigue and shortness of breath. Okay. Because you've got this shortage of red blood cells. So it feels like each breath is not giving you enough oxygen. So once you've been diagnosed with sickle cell disease, your life expectancy is unfortunately shortened. By how much? Well, if you're a man, your average life expectancy is 42 years. And if you're a woman, your life expectancy is 48 years. Oh no. So when you compare that to the average life expectancy of people in the Western world, where it is about 80 years old, that's a noticeable drop. Yeah, that's about half. That's a big problem. So how can they treat it? Well, the treatments are a little bit underwhelming as far as options go. And unfortunately, I think some of this has a sort of uh, social history to it. In what way? Well, sickle cell anemia is often associated as a black illness. By which you mean African Americans tend to have it? Yes, they are the most affected group. The CDC, for example, actually puts it at 1 in 365 African Americans having the illness. That's really common. Yeah. So what is it in Caucasians? They didn't bother putting a number down. It's so uncommon. And for Hispanic Americans, it's 1 in 16,300. So it's noticeably more common in minorities. Okay, so how does this relate to treatment? I'm a little bit scared to find out. Well... As I say, the treatment is underwhelming, and it may be to do with that sort of social aspect. So, to prevent a sickle cell crisis, so you remember those extremely painful, awful, traumatic experiences I just mentioned. Where your bone starts dying, yeah. Yep. The best treatment they have for you is drink plenty of fluids. What, like when you have a cold? Yeah. That's it? Oh no, no, there's more. It gets worse. Uh, wear warm clothing to avoid getting cold, because that will make your blood vessels shrink. But again, it sounds like they're treating a cold. And avoid sudden temperature changes. Just wrap up warm and drink water? Are you kidding me? That's it? Yeah, that's it. For something that affects one in just under 400 African Americans. Yeah. And halves their life expectancy. Yep. That's as far as we've gotten in science. For dealing with sickle cell crises... Yeah, basically. Otherwise, do you get pain meds? You do get pain medication. Again, these are a little underwhelming. So, the most advanced one that you'll be given, if you have the condition, is something called hydroxyurea. Now, this is a chemical that just lowers the amount of red blood cells you produce. So, obviously, the reasoning for it is that if you have slightly less red blood cells, they'll block your blood vessels less frequently. However, you need frequent blood tests to make sure that you don't lower it too much. Yeah, lowering your blood cells doesn't seem like a great thing. It's not the best, and it seems kind of counterintuitive because a lot of patients actually experience a shortage of red blood cells because their red blood cells are fragile. So this treatment could exacerbate other symptoms? Yeah, potentially. Otherwise, other pain options you have? And uh, this kind of smacks of the uh, disparity that you saw with the opium crisis. Paracetamol and ibuprofen. That's it? 
Yeah, the only direct pain medication. That that doesn't seem like much. I take paracetamol for a headache. Yeah? It doesn't really seem sufficient for my bone dying? Yeah, it kind of makes sense why Miles Davis was taking codeine. Yeah, yeah, I'll start to piece together. So, other methods that are a little less tragic for dealing with symptoms are preventing infection. Because if you have all these blood vessels getting damaged and you have your cells aren't working the way they should do, then you're more prone to infection. So, patients are often given a course of antibiotics that they take daily. Daily, like, forever? Yes. And this is obviously to prevent them from getting ill, but it does mix in with the risk that they then might get antibiotic-resistant infections. Yeah, seems to really increase that chance. Yeah. And otherwise, patients are encouraged to get vaccinated, as this will lower the chances of them getting infected with particularly viruses. So for treating the anemia itself, patients are given folic acid supplements. And this is because this type of anemia is not responsive to iron. Like so an iron. Does, so what does folic acid do? I feel like I've heard about it in reference to women's menstruation. Yes, and it's also used for when women are pregnant. And it's to help stimulate red blood cell production. So, oh. yeah, so you need some of it in order to actually make red blood cells. So, one treatment is to cut the number of red blood cells. Another treatment is to increase the number of red blood cells. Yep. So, the most regularly prescribed treatments for sickle cell anemia involve wrapping people up, taking fluids, having supplements, and paracetamol. How does this compare to some other genetic diseases? Are the number of treatment options available as bad for other genetic diseases, just because of where we are in our knowledge about them? Yes, if we have a shortage of knowledge in the illness, we've definitely got a shortage of treatments. So some extremely rare conditions where it's hard to get the case studies to work out what's going on with them, then treatment options are extremely limited, and you might just manage the symptoms as they come. But you, you work in this kind of pharmacology, would would you think that it's odd for a disease this common to have such so few treatment options? Yes, this is quite concerning, but I think part of the reason is that pharmaceutical companies work with a cost-to-benefit ratio a lot of the time. So if an illness is common enough, they normally consider that they'll make enough returns, but it does normally need to be common enough in countries that are willing to pay. Ah, uh, so... What we could guess there, and we don't know for sure, is that because it's predominant in a minority ethnic community, that overall are often less able to pay for treatment, that drugs don't get developed for them? Yeah, exactly that. They don't feel that the investment is worth the, um, is worth the returns that they'll get. This is a really scary intersection of social history and science. <laughs> yeah, it definitely is. So, would you like to know about one useful treatment that you can get for sickle cell disease? Oh, good, there's something that works? There is actually a cure of sorts. A cure? So why, does, why is it still a problem? Well, this cure is only considered for children with severe sickle cell disease that is unresponsive to the other forms of treatment. Okay, what is it? Bone marrow transplant. A bone marrow transplant in this situation is where you take 
bone marrow from a healthy donor and you transfer it into the bones of a patient and then that bone marrow should be able to produce normal red blood cells. So this is the kind of treatment you might see in movies for people with leukemia, right? Yes. What's worth noting though is that part of the reason that this is rarely done is that it's very risky. So there is a decent chance that the bone marrow will get rejected by the host. And the problem is that most treatments that you use to prevent rejection of tissue, you can't give to someone if you're trying to get them to make use of the bone marrow because the drugs suppress the ability for the bone marrow to produce the blood cells, including the immune cells. Okay, so rejection is when the patient's body rejects the the new bone marrow because it doesn't recognize it as part of the body, right? Yes. And normally, when you have a transplant, you'll give people drugs such as azathioprine to prevent them from rejecting the tissue, and this drug suppresses the immune system. But the way it does it is it suppresses the bone marrow's ability to produce blood cells, such as the immune cells. Isn't the whole point of the bone marrow being put in to produce blood cells? Yes, so you can't give patients this treatment to prevent the rejection, so they're at a higher risk of having this tissue rejection. So it's a lot harder to find appropriate matches. So there is a cure, but it's really risky. And it's very painful. In a bone marrow transplant, the donor will have holes drilled into their bone, and they will take some of the bone marrow, and they'll test it. And they will then have to do the same thing for the patient. And if they match, what they can then do is then drill some more holes in the bone, take some of the bone marrow out, transfer it into the patient after they've drilled holes into their bone. And this is all extremely painful. Well, that's scary, but I'm glad there's something that can help. This is a cure? How does it last forever? Do you need to have this done multiple times? So bone marrow has stem cells in it and stem cells can keep reproducing until you die. So these cells can grow into the bone, they can keep producing themselves, and they can make other cells that then specialise into the red blood cells, the white blood cells. So it's self-sustaining. Does it completely cure it, or do you have other bones with bone marrow in them continuing to produce the sickle cells? Well, what you can do is you can give a patient chemotherapy to knock out their bone marrow and just replace it with the new bone marrow. That's really scary. Yep, that's how you do do a hard reboot on someone's blood cells. Okay, I can see why they might not go for this right away for everyone. Yeah. Are there any options with gene therapy? So, like, just fixing the affected gene? Not currently, but I think it's worth now that you've mentioned the gene, to actually describe what sort of mutation this is and what that kind of means. Yeah, go for it. Sickle cell anemia is what's known as an autosomal recessive disease. Whenever you say those words, I get scared. So autosomal just means that it's a gene from a chromosome that's not a sex chromosome. So So not X or Y linked. Yeah, it's not an X or Y chromosome. Okay. So it's a recessive gene. So that means both parents need to pass it on for you to get it? Yes. But neither of them need to have had the disease, so you could suddenly have sickle cell disease without either of your parents having ever shown symptoms? Yes, that's correct. 
Yes, I understood. Good. And uh, this is a particularly strange type of mutation known as a single nucleotide polymorphism, or a SNP. And what this means is in that whole line of nucleotides, so A, T, G, C, that makes up the DNA for that gene, in this case, one A in the entire line has changed into a T. Just one. One tiny little change and all of your blood cells are messed up. Yeah. Before we take a break, there are some other illnesses that sickle cell causes. Oh no. Remember how I was saying that those crises can cut off blood supply? Yeah. Well, one of the things they can do is they can cut off blood supply to the cartilage in your joints. Then the cartilage can die away, bone starts rubbing together, and you get osteoarthritis. As if you didn't have enough problems. Yeah, and that's a very painful condition. There's also a particularly unusual condition that you can get called pica. Now, pica is an odd eating disorder where you will eat things that aren't food. So dirt, grass, rust, nails. Like Strange Addiction style? Yes, yes. Uh, quite a few people on Strange Addictions have pica. And the reasoning for this is that Patients are probably severely lacking in some minerals, and their body is obsessively making them eat things that it believes will have those minerals. Why are you lacking minerals with sickle cell disease? Your cells just aren't functioning properly, tissues being damaged, you're not taking things in. Okay. Like, this isn't a common condition that you can get with sickle cell. One of the more common ones that's concerning, you know how I was saying that you can get heart and lung damage? Yeah. Well, you can also have strokes, because the cells will block up some of these capillaries that are feeding the brain. And then you don't have enough oxygen to the brain? That's not good. No, it's really unpleasant. And unfortunately, on that depressing note, I think we should take a break. Do we know where sickle cell disease came from? We do have uh, an origin for the mutation. It seems to have come independently from four different populations. What do you mean independently? So none of these populations were linked to each other in a way that would allow the mutation to be passed between them. And this tiny mutation just happened to appear in all these different populations? A good way to think about it is, as your body's replicating DNA, it does have to error check it, but there's always a chance it will make a mistake. So if it happens to make that one mistake, and that stays, then you get that disease. Or you get that mutation passing through the population. So that just happened to happen on four separate occasions. Okay, where did it happen? Three locations in sub-Saharan Africa. The fourth one happened in either Saudi Arabia or Central India. Okay, when did, when did sickle cell disease appear? Well, researchers have been able to date the mutation to somewhere between 70 and 150,000 years ago. This is just a human condition, because we didn't separate from any other species of non-humans after 8 million years ago. So that's not that long ago in biological terms? No. So this is another disease that seems really rough on people and to really limit their life expectancy. So how has it survived so long? 
as well as sickle cell anemia being more common in certain groups, it's particularly common in sub-Saharan Africa, with 10 to 40% of people carrying the mutation there. Okay, so is there some benefit to having it? Well, interestingly, the areas that have the most people with the sickle cell mutation are also the areas that are worst affected by malaria. Okay, why would malaria and a genetic disease be linked? Well, it turns out if you have one copy of the mutation, you are immune to malaria. Well, that, that seems like a pretty good thing. Yes, so although having two copies can obviously shorten your life expectancy and cause you a lot of pain, having one copy of it can protect you from something which is actually the deadliest organism in Africa. So people with, with this mutation would be more protected from malaria and therefore be able to survive, have a, have a greater chance of surviving childhood and being able to produce offspring, passing on the gene. Yeah, that's exactly how. So do you want to know how we came across this mutation? Yeah. This mutation was discovered by a man called Linus Pauling in 1949. And this guy was a rock star in the scientific community. He was the, well, he is the only person to ever have two Nobel Prizes awarded to him and only him. So with no collaborators? Yes. And interestingly... He is the first person to ever attribute a genetic illness to its mutation. So he actually figured out what caused the disease? Yes. Now, we knew about DNA from about the 1800s, and we kind of had an idea of how DNA worked from about the early 1900s. But Linus Pauling was the first person to go, here's a change in that DNA, and this is what it does. Cool. Rock star of science indeed. Yes, and actually, crazily enough, his work on DNA is actually what inspired the work of James Watson, Francis Crick, and Rosalind Franklin, which then led to the discovery of the structure of DNA, that double helix that everyone sees, in 1953. Oh, cool. And... Linus Pauling himself was kind of an interesting person. He was the, the way to think of him is almost like the Michael Jackson of science. Um, okay. He came in, he changed the way we thought about it, and then he kind of went off the rails a little bit with his theories. Oh, saying rough things about Michael Jackson here. So in this <laughs> no, case, fine. I'm teasing. so in this case, what Linus Pauling did was he started to get obsessed with living forever. And he's the reason why we attribute vitamin C with treating the cold. Does it not? No. Oh. It has no effect on it. And the only reason that we believed that, even though there was no evidence to support it, was because this brilliant individual claimed it did. He also thought that it could prevent cancer. And both sadly and ironically, he died of cancer. But he was so cool. And now he's lying to us about orange juice? Well, he believed it. It wasn't him lying, he believed it. And since then, we've just found out it's not right? Yes. Okay, so what's the picture now? You talked about what kind of treatments there are, but are there any new ones being developed? So the most effective treatment that is kind of being developed is the preventative method. And this is where parents 
who can afford it are screened for the mutation and are then counseled and then they can choose to have IVF babies so that the child either carries none of the mutated gene or one copy. Okay, so get rid of it by just making sure there are fewer children with it. Yeah, and you know that's obviously long term probably a cheaper option if you can afford the initial consultation and the IVF. There is also gene therapy on the way. So currently we're in clinical trials for a treatment that knocks down a gene and uh, by knocking down what I mean is that we reduce the amount that that gene is active. So just stop the, uh, the, the bad gene from working? No. So what it actually does is it knocks down a particular gene that switches the body into kind of a fetus mode. So your bone marrow starts thinking, oh, we're, de we're a developing fetus, so we're going to make fetal hemoglobin. And that's a different hemoglobin, which doesn't involve that mutated hemoglobin beta. So just convince your body it's a baby? Yeah, just convince the uh, bone marrow that it's a baby, basically. Science is wild. Oh yeah. But that, how cool is that, though? That you just reduce the activity of another gene, and you completely avoid this faulty one. I'm so interested what other side effects it has, though. <laughs> well, it's currently undergoing clinical trials, so we're not going to fully understand it at this point. But obviously, having this alternative could greatly improve the lives of patients. That would be great. It seems like they really need a break. Now's a good time to kind of mention how, as an individual, we can be better people around patients of sickle cell disease. Okay, is this a disease where we would know from looking at them that they have it? No, no there's not. So you would probably have to know the person had sickle cell disease or ask them. Okay, so it's another invisible illness. Yes, it is definitely an invisible illness, as the only way you can tell for certain, really, is to either look at their DNA or look at their blood. And it's a bit messed up going up to a random stranger and asking for a blood sample. A little bit creepy. Could get you arrested. <laughs> so if you have a friend, for example, who has sickle cell and they're tired, that's not an exaggeration. They're probably exhausted. So, you know, you just got to be patient with them. And for anyone providing medical care for sickle cell disease is that patients should be taken at their word when they say they have pain and possibly offer them slightly stronger painkillers. So interestingly, there have been some studies that have shown that sickle cell disease patients are no more likely to misuse opioids than anyone else. And unfortunately, that belief may have stemmed from a historical reluctance for Western societies to give minority groups opioids for equivalent pain that they will give Caucasian people. Oh, so, that's sad. So again, the whole thing with like the opioid crisis where it affected white people a lot more because they were more readily given the painkillers. Another thing that's important to note is that right now you should be shielding sickle cell patients where possible because they are more prone to have serious symptoms if they are infected with COVID-19. Unfortunately, as they as affected people are predominantly in minority groups, they're probably more involved in essential work and or are living a tighter budget and therefore have to work 
regardless of if it's safe for them. Stay home, please, people. Where possible, try to protect someone with sickle cell disease from coronavirus. So let's stop thinking about the pandemic. How can we destigmatize the condition? Okay. Um, okay, so there are a couple myths that we could address. And these are going to make you a little angry because you, they are tinted with racial bias. As if the rest of this hasn't already made me angry. Yeah, unfortunately, the history of sickle cell disease is basically the history of the effect of racism on scientific research. So, myth one, patients are lazy. Now, this one probably stems to some degree from the fact that anemia leaves people exhausted and also that pain is exhausting. And therefore, patients with sickle cell disease do not have as much spare energy as unaffected people. So they're not lazy, they're just tired. Unfortunately, the predominance of this condition in these groups may also be why certain stereotypes are associated with certain ethnic groups for being lazy. It's a little cycle that's been feeding itself through racial assertions. The second myth is that sickle cell patients are difficult. What do you mean by difficult? That's the myth. How condescending is that? That they're, they're just... Hard to deal with? Yeah, they're awkward to work with. So, one reason that a patient might seem unreasonable is probably because sickle cell patients are often not taken seriously when they report their symptoms, particularly when it comes to pain. And a lot of sickle cell patients have experienced at least one traumatising experience with a doctor. So, of course, they're going to be difficult in a way. When doctors don't take your condition seriously, it can just be so upsetting. I really feel for them. Well, it erodes trust between the doctor and the patient. Third myth that, again, is a painful one to read, is that sickle cell patients are drug-seeking. No, they're just in pain. Give them some pain meds. Yep. Sickle cell crises can be extremely painful, and they require multiple types of painkillers, including opioids would be a good one, because... Sickle cell patients are no more likely to misuse opioids than anyone else. Well, this has been depressing. There's another one. Oh. Final myth. These patients can't have significant amounts of pain whilst they look comfortable. So this is really annoying because anyone who deals with chronic pain gets very good at masking it because you don't want people asking you all the time, why do you look so uncomfortable? So to look at someone and think, oh, they're managing themselves quite well, they can't be in pain is extremely condescending to those individuals. So just ask how people are doing. Okay, so some of the sources here. So there was a interesting paper called Global Distribution of the Sickle Cell Gene and Geographical Confirmation of the Malaria Hypothesis. And this one has a really cool figure where it shows you both the distribution of the sickle cell gene by number of people, and then it compares it to the amount of malaria cases. And it's just on a nice map. So it makes it very clear, that relationship. Which I think is quite fun. Like, it's Love really a good clever. infographic. Yeah, it's great. So with that, I think uh, we're getting to the end of the episode. As with all of our episodes, the music is produced by William Kitchener Music. So definitely give that a listen. And with that said, I think you should be treating everyone fairly. Because if you can't see the genes, don't expect to see the illness. Goodbye. Bye.